There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. George Thorogood and the Delaware Destroyers rock Wolf Trap in Northern Virginia on August 12th. I spoke with Thorogood about his biggest hits, from Bad to the Bone to Who Do You Love. Is this Jason? Yes. Hey, is this George Thorogood? Jason, how are the Argonauts? Uh, they're doing pretty good with that old, what was it, Harry Housen special effects with the sword. See, I know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, you're hip. You're coming to Wolf Trap. Is this your first big gig back since the pandemic? They're all big gigs. <laughs> <laughs> well, we started last night in Illinois and working our way to D.C. Awesome. So this is like your first, I would say, the first tour back since since COVID. Pretty much, yeah. Oh, that's great. How did you spend the last year? Over COVID, how did you spend COVID? Uh, like I always do when I'm... Uh, not working, uh, Jason, uh, just minding my own business, you know, uh, uh, you know, playing the guitar, exercising, you know, I, uh, that's what I usually do anyway. I pretty much keep close to home. Um, you know, I pretty, uh, pretty much a homebody, uh, uh, to tell you the truth. Um, so I, so I pretty much did, I, I caught up on a lot of things, caught up on my guitar playing, caught up on my exercising, um, I did a few other things, but um, nothing out of the ordinary that I wouldn't do normally when I'm off the road. Nice. And how cool is it to be, you know, sharing a bill with with Joan Jett? I mean, you guys were, you know, uh, coming up, being a big deal back in the 80s at the same around the same time, getting popular together. But um, how cool would it be to, to share a stage with her? I wonder how cool she thinks it'll be to share a stage with me. Ha ha. <laughs> That's the answer right there. Anyway, I'm looking forward to it. I've never. um I've never met the lady. We did a, um, a festival with her, the Memphis Blues Festival, a few years back. And then I found out later that, um, not unlike myself, she's quite a baseball fan, a, a Baltimore Orioles uh, fan. And playing in D.C., um, uh, I'm sure she's still an Oriole fan, not, a, not a, with all due respect, a, a Nationals fan. So um, that could be interesting. Hey, man, I'm an Orioles fan. Besides, too. you know, it's always a thrill to, to work with someone who's in the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And if I uh, if I don't get a chance to meet her, I'll pass on my congratulations to her. I think you should be in there, too, man. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, Jason. Well, I'll continue to push that opinion for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you are in the city of politics, so good luck. Yeah, well, speaking of this city, um, there's a famous story. I was interviewing what the head of Blues Alley the other day and um, tell me if this is real or just apocryphal. But he says there's a famous picture of you in the Washington Post or something where you were playing the old cellar door in Georgetown and then you you switch spots with another artist to go play what Desperados. Is. Do you remember this photo? Everyone's talking. About? I remember doing it, actually. I remember uh, that was something the Nighthawks cooked up, you know, Thackeray and his bunch uh, 
they cooked up that idea and they were working at Desperados across the street and we were working a cellar door. And uh, what I do remember, though, is while they were working right across the street in our club, all the Nighthawks girlfriends and wives were in our club watching me. And that's what was wrong with Eric Thackeray. See, he was he was jealous about that. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> we we drew all his women away from him. You got all the attention then they were all coming to see you. <laughs> that's right. That's hilarious, man. That's hilarious. Well, I figured our DC listeners would, uh, some of them would remember uh, either that photo or maybe they'd actually were at member those shows too. So I figured I'd, I'd check in on that one. Well, take me, you know, whenever I have someone, you know, as esteemed as yourself on here, I like to know your sort of your journey. So obviously, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're born in Wilmington, Delaware, but you know, what, what sort of music did you grow up on? You know, how'd you get into music in the first place back, back in Wilmington? Well, I had, I had uh, two older brothers who were, uh, who were teenagers at the time, and um, my my older my older brother um, bought a lot of singles and records and had the radio on. So when when rock and roll hit about 1956, it hit our household anyway. And Elvis Presley was the big thing going. Uh, I I did not realize I did not know at that tender age. I was very very young. I didn't um, know that this rock and roll thing was something new. That it was a new wave of music. It's uh, was sweeping the world and it was mostly music designed toward teenagers um which i didn't know this until many years later so everything that happened in in music on the radio i heard it and then when my oldest brother went in the air force uh my second oldest brother took over and he got records and played so i grew up with the stuff all around me and uh then then came the beatles and the stones and all those people so that was kind of my generation of it i've been connected to this thing ever since i can remember um so uh, I didn't I got in on the very beginning of the party. Gotcha. Well, thanks for keeping the party going for, for the rest of us in the decades to come. Um, yeah, you've probably told this story a million times, but I got to get it for posterity on here. You know, how tell take me into the formation of the Delaware Destroyers. What year was it like? Seventy three. Like how, how did that formation actually happen? Quite by accident, actually. Um, I had been performing as a soloist uh, for a while and. Uh, I wasn't much good at it. I, I could handle the guitar pretty good. And I was getting great encouragement from people and getting from artists like Sonny Terry, Robert Lockwood, Hound Dog Taylor. And I had been had it in the back of my mind to start a band someday. But I was noticing that I was gravitating closer, closer to pu putting a band together. Um, and I was encouraged to do that by Robert Lockwood, amongst other people. So uh, we went, went to a, I went back to Delaware to see uh, see my sister get married. I was living in Boston at the time and I went down there and there was a party and Jeff Simon showed up with his drums and I picked up an electric guitar, which I never really played much. And we were just jamming and having a good time. And he really uh, sparked the interest. He did. And he was very knowledgeable about the music. Uh, his tastes were very similar to mine. And he had a unique quality of being able to follow me on the guitar. I have a very unorthodox style, Jason. Um, and not every drummer can play with me, um, especially in those days. So uh, I started thinking about it. We had jammed a couple more times. And he showed up in Boston to see me, to visit me. And we saw Hound Dog Taylor. And I said, Jeff, we're going to start a band. And we're going to have a band like those guys. And at that moment, I had never really 
thought about it to that very moment when he showed up. I said, well, you and I are going to start a band. And, uh, you know, he immediately went out, you know, quit his job, dropped out of college, bought a drum set, took his Volkswagen, filled it up with gas, got every eight track tape he could on rock and roll and and uh, and blues and showed up at my house with all that and a, and a case of beer. And he knocked on the door and said, come on, let's go. What kind of beer was it? Do you remember? <laughs> Free. <laughs> the best kind, my friend. Yeah. Drummer you didn't people. ask what kind of music it was. Boy, the mind of the world. <laughs> you didn't ask. You didn't ask what kind of music was it? Or what kind of beer was it? You mentioned that you had an unorthodox style. Not every drummer could keep up. What do you mean by that? What What made you so unorthodox? That's just the way I play. I wasn't something out of design. Um, I'm a, I play with a finger pick and a thumb pick. And um, I don't play with a flat pick. Um, and I, 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 I really picked up on things like like John Lee Hooker and Robert Johnson pretty fast because I, I, I found out later that's how they played the guitar. And I was fortunate to see people like uh, Brandy McGee and John Hammond and, and, and Fred McDowell, people like that, who played with their fingers like I do. I tried and I picked up a guitar and I just couldn't hold the pick in my hand. I was always dropping it. I just felt more comfortable playing with my fingers. But, you know, I, I had a strong heart attack on the guitar, heavy attack and you know, my fingers are always bleeding and they're hurting. So I had to get these picks on my fingers. And in that sense, it was more of a, an acoustic blues style of playing the guitar, which, um, you know, I kind of adapted to electric guitar like Freddie King did. Uh, so, yeah, that's just it's just a natural way I play. Uh, as Lockwood said, you know, you remind me of John Lee Hooker. You play right because you play wrong. <laughs> i love it i love it yeah. and that you're attacking the guitar i love that. exactly that's great well uh you mentioned john lee hooker a couple times obviously that that first album you had your debut album uh featured a your awesome uh cover of john lee hooker's one bourbon one scotch one beer you know it might be sacrilege to say that hookers isn't the definitive version but a lot of people like myself grew up we heard yours first and then <laughs> then went back and discovered hooker it's funny how that works but um just memories of, of forming that song and you know of, of hooker's entire catalog why was that the one you say oh we, we gotta do that one all right. It's, it's a lengthy story, Jason, but I'll lay it on you. All right. Thanks. Man. Uh, it was a guy I was playing music with and we were just pals playing music. And on his birthday for a birthday treat, I took him to New York to see John Lee Hooker play live. And uh, I had an album by John Lee Hooker called uh, John Lee Hooker Live at the Cafe of Go-Go. And he was backed up by the Muddy Waters band. And on the album, he had this song called One Bourbon, One Scotch and One Beer. <clears throat> so... When we went to see him play, I uh, noticed that he did two sets. And in both sets, he did the song Bourbon, Scotch and Beer in both sets. Now, in those days, Jason, when you went to see a blues artist, everybody sat there at all of them, like they were in a temple or in a church or uh, like a shrine. And you could hear a pin drop. But when Hooker was playing, everybody was dancing. And I said, dancing to the blues? It's just not done. So... He was playing a song, Bourbon, Scotch, and Beer, and 90% of the people dancing to that song were women. And I said, aha, aha, there, now we're talking. So I saw two years later, I was working, opening up for Brandon McGee and Sonny Terry, and Brandon McGee did a version of it. And he immediately, people got on the dance floor, and again, it was mostly women. 
And he was just playing without a band, alone with acoustic guitar. So I started playing it part of my set. And I got the same reaction. And I said, Jeff, that's the first song we're going to learn. Remember something. No matter what it is, especially in music or movies and everything, the women lead the way. I mean, after all, uh, who discovered Elvis Presley? Women. Who discovered the Beatles? Women. So when I saw the chicks out there boogieing to bourbon, scotch, and beer, I said, that's the first song we're going to learn. We never even thought much of it. We just wanted to get the same reaction uh, Hooker did. And uh, it's, luckily, it's still going strong for us. Does that answer your question? It absolutely does. And and then some. So thank you, sir. Yeah, I mean, you've really you have a real knack for, you know, taking those existing songs and making reinventing them. So the fact that, you know, we almost forget that someone else did them first, they've become so your own. I mean, you redid uh, Hank Williams moving on over awesomely. And then but the one I want to know about is who do you love? Wasn't wasn't that that was a rework well, of Bo Diddley, right? You like, know, how'd that come that, <clears throat> Rounder Records talked me into doing that song. I wasn't good. I didn't really feel like doing because so many people had covered it before that. Uh, uh, John Hammond's version is the version. And there's a version of Bo Diddley doing that in about 1966. And I think it's the band backing him up, the band meeting the band of, of Levon Helm and Robbie Robertson, people like that. And it is just it is just everything, the essence of what I wanted to do in music I, it might even be the butterfield band behind Bo Diddley. i don't know i'm still searching it out but everybody did that song i mean you know the woolies did it great and i mean quicksilver messenger service had a whole album and it said who do you love what do you love when do you love where do you love <laughs> you know uh, so when i when i was i said ah, that song's been done to death man and ron was going well you only got seven songs on the record george you got to put something on it <laughs> so uh, the president of the record label uh, talked me into doing it. Now, who's going to argue with the president of your record company? Dig. And it was a woman. All right. Once again, return to that theme. There you go. <laughs> Leading the way, as always. Well, exactly. There's so many songs we could talk about, but I know my listeners will absolutely kill me if I don't ask you about Bad to the Bone, 1982. The album was called that, too, but obviously the hit song, Smash Hit. Well, I don't want people to kill you, Jason. You know? <laughs> yes, yeah, so you better tell me. <laughs> yeah, you know, I want to help you out, keep you out of the hospital, you know. I appreciate you can't have that. I appreciate. Yeah. Wow. Step George Thurgood saving my life here on this. But um, yeah, man, I mean, how did you come up with that? Because there's a little bit of like the Muddy Waters Manish boy. But you, it's a little reworked in there. Um, but how did you come up with that song and the, you know, the stutter at the the way that you're reading it? I mean, there's so many masterful touches in that. But take me into the creation of that one. All right. Uh, first of all, in our neighborhood, the word was bad, bad meaning groovy, bad meaning cool. And. There was a guy in our neighborhood, Mitch Perry. He used to say, bad to death, bad to death, like that. I said, well, that's a little heavy. So I thought, mm, maybe bad to the bone. And I always thought prepositional phrases work, work really well. Uh, blowing in the wind, gone with the wind, uh, things like that. And I said, there's a lot of words that rhyme with the word bone more than they do the word death. And I don't want the word death in the title of a song. So when we started fooling around, I've always been I've always been knocked out by those tongue in cheek, exotic lyrics, people like Bo Diddley and the Rolling Stones use. And once we started working on it, we immediately were putting it together. We wanted Muddy Waters to do it. 
that was that was the that was the thing um because it was so close to what muddy waters does already and the stuttering thing i remember when roger daltrey did that in 1965 and you know talk about my generation and then a few years later about 10 years later it was a band said baby you ain't got nothing yet and so i figured the market was ripe every 10 years to another gen to bring something that into the song and it wasn't just um and it's the title itself i said this title is just too juicy if we don't write a song called Bad of the Bone, somebody else will. So it must well be me. But the Muddy Waters organization turned us down flat. And I was that kind of hurt our feelings. They, they didn't even want to listen to it and said, you know, Muddy Waters is no. His manager said Muddy Waters will never cut a song, you know, uh, a blues song written by a white guy. And I said, that is bullshit. If Eric Clapton wrote that song or Keith Richards, you'd record it in a minute. But I'm a nobody from Delaware. So. We took the song to Bo Diddley, who did like the song, but he didn't have a record deal. So uh, to balance things out, we put Bo Diddley in the video. Does this answer your question? <laughs> it absolutely did. I just think it's genius, though, man. Even right from the beginning, you, you have nurses gathering around you as a baby boy saying, man, he's bad. <laughs> you, you use the word genius? I think so, man. I just heard you say genius. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll take it back if you want to keep questioning it, but I think no, you no, are. I love you, Jason. <laughs> Genius. Yes, that's me. Uh huh, Jason. I love you. We'll slap that label on there. Well, I know uh, you've been you've been generous with your time. I know we don't have that much time. Probably maybe only time for one more, but I have to ask about I drink alone. I mean, that might be along with Bad to the Bone. That might be your most recognized uh, one, and and you're always good at sharing these stories of how they came about. So uh, hit me with that one. I drink alone. Well, again, we were working on that song and we were trying to make it a country song. I was very hung up on country music at the time. I was listening to a country station in L.A. And we were working on a country and Western version and we wanted George Jones to record it. And that, that's what I was doing most of the time when I put together the original. I had some other artists in it. And I wanted to, I wanted I really like girls. I wanted the Stray Cats to do that song. Um you know, I had, a, like I say, a Band of the Bone from Muddy Waters and A Drink Alone we thought would be a good song for George Jones. And then the record company said, look, George, we didn't hire you for, for writing songs for other people. <laughs> you know, we, we want you to do it. So we kind of fooled around and came with a little bit of more of a, a Destroyers type presentation. I love it. Well, thanks. I mean, again, there's so many we could do. Get a haircut. There's so many songs that we've known and loved over the years. But uh, we we'll won't talk about you- them next time. Yeah, we'll talk about it next time. Uh, but thanks for so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, just sort of wrapping it around and closing to the Wolf Trap concert. Why should our folks come out? You know, maybe they've seen you before or they, and maybe it's been a while or they've never seen you. Why, why is this the one to come to on the 12th? Jason, I close by saying you're a genius. <laughs> Right back at you, man. George Thorogood, Wolf Trap, August 12th at 7.30 p.m. uh, on a bill with Joan Jett. You're not going to want to miss it. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. It was great meeting you. Our pleasure, Jason. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.